uh, here at Charlotte Chapel. We're excited about the opportunity to uh, try and hold up the best book, uh, the best seller in the world, and we believe it's the, the most significant book. Uh, hold it up to Edinburgh. It's exciting to do it at the same time as the book festival. It is, no, um, it, it is not a random thing that that has happened because our desire is to just promote this book to uh, the people of Edinburgh. Now tonight I'm going to do something a little bit different from what we normally do Sunday by Sunday. I, I want to present an argument. I want to deal with some of the issues that maybe get in the way of people even starting to think about uh, the Christian faith and even consider what the Bible has to say. And uh, I don't know um, what sort of uh, background you have, whether you're here as a, as a Christian of many years, or whether you're skeptical and not a Christian, or you're just curious, or uh, you were just walking along the street and came in here, I don't know, but we're really glad to have you here. Uh, we believe that we're talking about a God who is present with us right now, and so if you want God to speak to you, why don't you bow your heads and join with me in this prayer. Father, we want to thank you that uh, you have not uh, hidden yourself away, but you have made yourself known. And so we pray that you'd help us now as we come and and consider briefly this part of uh, Acts, as we consider uh, the claim of Christianity. Help us to see it in the light of um, where things are happening in the world. Give us the ability, Lord, to put away our prejudices that we may think freshly about these things. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, if I haven't been to the bookshop across the way at the uh, festival yet, normally it's an amazing uh, display of various books. Going to any bookshop these days, and what I find intriguing is that there's probably about as many shelves devoted to spirituality as there are to all the world religions. And as you stand before there and look at uh, all these different world religions and then look down these amazing titles of spirituality, it's all a bit bewildering. I mean, if you've only got, you know, 15 quid, which one are you going to go for? Uh, how would you know? How do you deal with all these competing views? Well, of course, we're not living um, in a, um, a unique time. Uh, these are the sort of issues that uh, were going on in the first century and the same sort of things that were going on when Paul visited Athens. And so if you want to open your Bibles back up to our Bible reading that was earlier, and if you don't have a Bible, pick up a red Bible in the pew and you'll find it on page 1113. 1113 will find you at Acts chapter 17. 1113. You know, most people are not atheists. There are a few uh, convinced atheists, but the truth statistically is that most people are agnostic. And they say, well, uh, I kind of think there's something up there, but they, they say, I just wish, I wish God would make himself clearer. And, and that's what we're going to think about tonight. I wonder if you've thought that yourself. I want to be uh, completely honest and acknowledge my complete indebtedness to a, an Australian uh, historian and Christian called John Dixon, and uh, I'm, I'm borrowing much of this material from that book, and you can actually buy that book downstairs. I get none of the proceeds. John gets them all. Uh, I tried to get John here when he was over earlier, but he, he couldn't come up to Edinburgh. So ne- next best thing, I've read the book for you, and I'm going to distill the argument. So Paul 
wanders around Athens in the first century. And do you notice what he uh, is observing? Uh, he, he, he looks around Athens, and, and we'd be going, ooh, look at that architecture, it's amazing, look at that. Well, this is what he focused in on. He focused on the fact that they were very religious. Um, verse 22, man of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I want to say at the outset that talking about God is a common sense thing to do. It may sound strange to say that in our skeptical Richard Dawkins-esque age, but it is a very common sense thing to do. Analyze any culture anywhere in the world and you'll find that it has uh, some connection with the divine. It's trying to make sense of something bigger than themselves. Uh, even if you go to North Korea, which is an atheistic state, it is fascinating to me that they put up golden uh, statues of their leaders and practically deify the leaders. There's something very intrinsic in the human nature that wants to look up beyond ourselves and say, there's, there's got to be something bigger than this. If we look at the brilliance of how this uh, universe is held together and some very minute differences would have, would have completely ruined the possibility of life. And yet life is possible. People find that extraordinary when they look at it. It's as if this, this world and, and this solar system was designed to exactly for human life. Uh, may, maybe people haven't thought about it in those sort of scientific ways. Maybe it's just to have their first child and to see a first child born looking at it. They, they just feel so thankful. And they wonder, well, what is this impulse? Who are they trying to thank? Who is there? Well, Paul points this out. Paul points out that uh, they are very religious and it is a very common sense thing to talk about God. We are incurably religious. And Paul, in fact, says to them that um, God has arranged the times and the places of human society with the express intention that we would search out for the source of life, search out to reach out and find him. That's how he starts as he speaks uh, to them. But the challenge is, as we look at all these different spiritual viewpoints and all these different religions in the world, is it can be a bit overwhelming. How do you deal with all these competing ideas? Uh, most people, I would say, in Britain, basically just say, it's too hard, and I'll dismiss them all and get on with my life. Yeah, I've got a sense of wonder, uh, but I just think it's, it's just too hard to work it out. I, I just can't make sense of it all and they dismiss it completely. Another approach is, that, um, is a more positive approach. It's an approach that says, well, you know, I affirm all these views. And, and, and it's very uh, trendy to have this approach, really. I'm a spiritual person and, and I affirm kind of all these different things. And, and it boils down to a view like this. Well, the truth is that, yeah, there's, there's God up there and we're all kind of maybe, it's different paths up the mountain. Uh, and, and when we get up that mountain, it's God at the top. But, it's, but there's different ways that people get there. And that's called pluralism. And that's very much the culture that was here in Athens. Uh, look at verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They're a real Radio 4 culture. You know, they listened to Start of the Week with Andrew Marr and... Uh, and, and they were just loved ideas, playing with ideas, thinking about ideas. And, and, and look at verse 23. He just, 
he says, as I walked around, look carefully at your objects of worship, uh, he saw idols everywhere, altars everywhere, temples everywhere. This was true of Athens. We've dug it up. You can, you can see the remains of it. And, and incredibly, he points out that, if, that, 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 that they thought, well, actually, maybe this one we haven't got. So they built an altar, verse 23, to the unknown God. Now that's, that's hedging your bets, isn't it? That's, that's pretty canny. We, got, we love all the gods, and just in case we didn't get one, here's one to the unknown god, so we can also recognize the one that we forgot. Very religious. It, it, a pluralistic culture. And many people think like today, well, you know, it, it's, it, let's not get caught up. It's lovely that people have all these views, and, and they're all true. If they're helpful to you, they're all true. Let's just coexist and, uh, and get on. But this pluralist view has a fatal flaw, doesn't it? And the fatal flaw of this is this. Uh, when we honor all religious perspectives, in the end, we honor none of them. If we honor all of them, the truth is that we honor none of them. Because... Uh, of course, if you're very superficial, you can look at it and say, well, yeah, it's all about God and you should love each other. See, it's all the same. But actually, if you look at a much more basic level of what these different faiths believe, they are fundamentally different. Let me illustrate that to you. Let's take the Eastern examples of um, Hinduism, Sikhism, and Buddhism. So Hinduism is uh, premised on the existence of a vast array of gods, polytheistic, each with their particular Uh, role uh, to play and expectations of the faithful. And then you've got uh, Guru Nanak, who uh, was a one-time devout Hindu, and uh, he came to reject this polytheism and instead insisted that there was just one deity who alone is worthy of worship. Think about Siddhartha Gautama, I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, the Buddha. He rejected Hinduism not by proposing the existence of one God, but by saying uh, there's no God. He negated theism altogether, which is a position that's still held by classical Buddhism today. Now, you don't need a degree in mathematics to work out that those are different, do you? If there are many gods, there can't be one God. And if there's one God, there cannot be many. And if there's no God at all, then there can't be many nor one. Uh, it's basic logic, isn't it? Um, Hindus, Sikhs, and Buddhists should, of course, get along and learn to love and respect each other's humanity and, and give freedom of expression. But they cannot for a moment, um, without seriously sacrificing their intellectual integrity, uh, regard each other's theology as true. There has to be an honest recognition that there are fundamental differences. And if I come along as some sort of enlightened Westerner and I, and I basically try and get these groups together and just say, well, do you know what? You all believe the same thing. What am I saying? I'm being profoundly arrogant. Who am I uh, to think, what, what, what great religious insight have I got to say, well, actually, you all believe the same thing when they believe such fundamentally different things? I mean, the entire base of, uh, basics of of Sikhism is that polytheism dishonors and detracts from the one true God. It is thoroughly opposed to Hinduism. So you can't come along and say it's all the same thing. Or again, take the, the three great Middle Eastern religions of uh, modern Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. 
And it's true that each of them affirm the existence of one creator God. Um, so in a sense, they agree on that point. But who are we to suggest that that's the only thing that matters? See, central to the Christian faith is the conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the promised Jewish Messiah, and that he died on a cross and that he rose again. Now, this really is a non-negotiable for Christians. This is a minimal, fundamental belief. Without it, there is no Christianity. But modern Judaism insists that Jesus was not the Son of God, that he was just one of many pretenders to the title. The true Messiah, says modern Judaism, is yet to come. They're still waiting for him. Now, logic alone, again, forbids one from affirming that at the same time Jesus is the Messiah and he's not the Messiah. Do you see that? You can't do that, can you? He either is or he is not. And two, that's a fundamental thing for modern Judaism. And the matter gets even more complicated when we introduce Islam. Uh, It was founded in the 7th century AD uh, by Muhammad. He venerated Jesus as a prophet, but insisted that he never died on the cross, as, uh, nor was he the Son of God. Indeed, these Christian beliefs are described in the Quran as blasphemous. Uh, so what is central to the Christian faith is an anathema to the Islamic faith. That is no small contradiction. He's the son of God who died on a cross and rose again. He's not the son of God, and that's blasphemous you should say that, and he didn't die on a cross, says Islam. Fundamentally different. And there are many other contradictions that we could explore. Christianity, for instance, uh, says that you are saved by grace through the mercy of God, and Islam insists, no, actually salvation is earned by ethical and uh, ritual obedience. Judaism affirms that uh, you enjoy just one life in this world, after which follows uh, God's assessment, whereas Buddhism teaches uh, a wheel of birth and rebirth, uh, sort of similar to reincarnation, that hopefully, eventually, you'll reach nirvana, a a blissful state of non-being. And again, you don't need to be a philosopher to see that that's fundamentally different, isn't it? Fundamentally different. A novelist and poet, Steve Turner, put this point well in a very tongue-in-cheek poem called Creed that will pop up now. He said this. Next slide, please. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one that we read was, they all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. Now, I want to say I believe in true tolerance. Uh, I think that... uh, Christians and Jews should love and respect each other and get on with each other. I, I, as a Christian, am fully able to respect uh, Islamic friends and treat them with respect and uh, and love them and appreciate them, but I I can't for a moment say that we're all believing the same thing. We are very confused about tolerance in our society today. The root word of tolerance is that you tolerate people. That is to say that I accept the position of another, treating them with respect and dignity, even though I deeply disagree with them. And I think they're wrong. And I say so. But, it, but today, you say, oh, you're so bigoted and intolerant. 
but uh, I believe in true tolerance. Now, we've considered that all these major world religions have fundamental differences. They can't all be true. So how do you work out and assess uh, the different claims of these different world religions? Well, I want to give you some categories to think about this. Uh, And uh, my third point is I want us to see that there are unverifiable and verifiable religious claims. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment that um, uh, someone comes up to you today with the unusual claim that last night um, his great-great-grandmother appeared to him in a dream offering insights into the nature of the spiritual realm and the best path to reach spirituality. It would be quite a conversation over coffee, wouldn't it? Can you imagine someone saying that to you? And these insights included detailed descriptions of the afterlife, advice um, on which foods to avoid, and a collection of prayers that ought to be said in order to attain enlightenment. And imagine again this this individual writes all this down in a notebook, uh, all that they can remember of of this matriarch's words, and they, they ask you to read their notes and to consider embracing this new spiritual perspective for yourself. Now, this is a very strange week, you're going to imagine, because let's imagine that tomorrow, another friend comes up to you with an equally unusual claim. And they say to you, um, do you know what? Uh, Last night, my great-great-grandfather appeared to me in a dream, and uh, the the great-great-grandfather offered insights into spirituality, and these insights were, were radically different to the other friend's. Um, this one said that actually uh, there's no afterlife, that all foods could be eaten, and mantras, not prayers, uh, were the key to um, being in line with spiritual truth. And that friend wrote down their, their, their insights of their great-great-grandfather, and they, they gave you them to consider to adopting, make a part of your life. Now, you've got a problem right there, haven't you? Number one, you've got very interesting friends. And, and number two... Which friend do you believe? Uh, Leaving aside the bizarre nature of of these revelations, um, how can you know the truth or falsehood of the claims? How can they be tested? They they contradict each other. Um, One could be true. Neither could be true. But how could you test that they were actually true? How could you test? Well, quite simply, you couldn't. You couldn't test. The character of these revelations means that they're beyond the scope of human inquiry. You could maybe do a lie detector test and see if they really believed it or not. But you wouldn't be able to um, test these claims. Philosophically speaking, these are unverifiable claims. Now, unverifiable doesn't Uh, We're not saying it's true or untrue. It's simply that you cannot test it. It's not not open to scrutiny by others. And the truth is that virtually all the world's religions are at their core unverifiable. And again, I'm not saying whether they're true or false, just that they cannot be verified one way or the other. So Buddhism rests entirely on the insights gained by uh, Gautama, the 6th century BC Indian prince and after seven years of ascetic denial 
He received his enlightenment while sitting under the bow tree uh, one night in May. And the Buddha's enlightenment consists of insights into the true goal of life, which is to the, negate self and negate desire. He, he, he saw the true nature of the afterlife, uh, karma and rebirth, and, he, and, and various insights into um, culinary disciplines and things like that that are required of those who wish to gain enlightenment. Now the truth is that neither the fact nor the content of that enlightenment can be tested. It was an experience that Buddha said he had. Nevertheless, Buddha gathered together some uh, group of devoted disciples who began to promote his teachings. They wrote down uh, some, of him, some of them in a book, compiled them as the sayings of the Buddha. Now, Islam is the same in this way. It is, it is uh, likewise grounded in a revelation of a, of a private and mystical nature. It's, it's kind of beyond analysis at one level. Muhammad, 7th century AD, he was a nobleman from Arabia. He, he was interested in religious matters from childhood. And one day in 610 AD, uh, his private reflections were enhanced by an angelic vision announcing to him, you are the messenger of God. And from this time until his death in 632, Muhammad received frequent and detailed revelations. And um, sometimes they were uh, accompanied by sounds like a bell, but mostly they were just perceived in his own heart, uh, um, Muhammad says. And uh, the content uh, is, is varied. Some are ethical uh, and ritual demands. Sometimes they are corrections of Jewish and Christian teaching. Uh, sometimes it's just doctrinal themes. And all these were subsequently proclaimed by Muhammad, committed to memory by his disciples, and compiled in the Islamic holy book of the Quran. Now, the point of the summary of both Buddhism and Islam is not to criticize them, but just simply to highlight that they are essentially unverifiable. They are visionary experiences. I'm not saying at this point whether they're true or untrue. I'm just trying to draw attention to the nature of their claims. And the truth is that most of the world's religions are unverifiable. Hinduism, Baha'i, Confucianism, all have the same basic premise. Now, are you with me? Have you fallen asleep? You're right. You got the argument? That's unverifiable. Now, imagine another friend comes up to you. You have quite a week. Because another friend comes to you on Tuesday and they say, unbelievable what happened on Monday. What happened on Monday, you say? And they say, well, um, I was going to work and I was coming down the Lothian Road and um, my great-great-grandmother appeared and uh, offered me new insight into the spiritual realm. And you went, oh, that's interesting. And, um, this, but this is different because actually it was a giant apparition that happened uh, where the Western Road joined with the Lothian Road. And, 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 and it caused such uh, an experience. It stopped the traffic for two hours. The buses and the cars couldn't go anywhere. And, you know, over 100 pedestrians saw this apparition of my great-great-grandmother. And because, you know, I, she was appearing to me, I wrote down what she said, and I've put it down in a book, and I want you to, to read it, and I want you to uh, adopt it into your life. Now, again, leaving aside the rather bizarre nature of this revelation, this is actually a verifiable claim, isn't it? Um, you could do some things to check this out, couldn't you? 
Um, you could listen to news reports and uh, see if the alleged event even rated a mention. You could do an analysis of the scene and see if it, uh, any incidental details made sense uh, or the witness reports. You could speak to some of these pedestrians and ask them what they saw. Um, you could go to the police and say, was there a problem on the Lothian Road? Was there congestion there? Uh, Now, you couldn't prove this beyond reasonable doubt, but you could find out if something significant did happen. Um, It's verifiable. Of course, verifiable doesn't mean it's true, but um, it means it can be tested. There's something that you can look at. It bears historic scrutiny. Now, when people consider all the different religions and philosophies, I, I often hear people, I've heard people say something like this. You know, if, if God was really there uh, and he was really interested in, in me following him, then I think, he would do, I, I think he should do something right now in front of me. He'd do something concrete. He'd do something right now that could be tested and clear and firm. And then, and then, I, would, and then I would know. I wish you know, God would make himself clearer. Would not God leave some tangible signpost to his presence that would turn the unknown God into the known God? So which uh, of the religions are, are based on verifiable claims? Well, there are three, I think, basically. There's Judaism, Christianity, and Mormonism. Let's start with the Book of Mormon. Um, because as we think about... Uh, where it's verifiable, we can ask the question, uh, are its claims credible or not? So let's think about uh, the Book of Mormon. I think this is a good example because it, it's a ver- it, has, it contains verifiable claims, but in my opinion, uh, claims that cannot be, um, well, are not personally, I don't find them very credible. Joseph Smith uh, was the founder of Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He grew up in New York in the early 1800s. And in 1827, um, and at the age of 22, he claimed that he, an angelic being um, led him to some buried golden plates. And he dug them up. And these plates were inscribed with a history of the American Indians, who, according to this account, were really descended from ancient Hebrews who had emigrated from Palestine to North America centuries before Christ, and that after Christ appeared in Israel, he actually appeared to them later because they were part of the lost tribes of Israel. And Smith translated these plates with aids of a special reading lens made of diamond, and he published his work under the title The Book of Mormon, named after the ancient prophet who was said to have originally inscribed the plates. Now, at one level, Joseph Smith's claim is unverifiable. It's a vision again, isn't it? Uh, No one else met the angelic beings, and Smith alone uh, saw the golden plates. No one really saw those plates either. Um, But there's lots of elements of this that we can say, okay, uh, does it link up with history? He said it was written in a language called Reformed Egyptian. And to this day, no archaeologist or Egyptologist has ever come across such a language. He describes in North America cities, tribes, and battles and practices that find no support in the extensive archaeological data relating to the history of North America. 
the Mormon church owns a great big hill where an incredible battle is supposed to have taken place and have yet found any evidence that anything did take place. The claim that the Native Americans were descended from Hebrews uh, has found no evidence in DNA or genetic analysis of blood samples. Instead, the Native American people trace their ancestry from um, East Asian Mongoloids who migrated from Asia into North America. There is just simply no evidence that would inspire confidence for the inquirer outside. Uh, there doesn't appear to be tangible signposts to God's dealings with the world as presented by the Mormon faith. Let's think about Judaism. Uh, let's think about a, a, a key event. If you read the Old Testament, a key event in, in, in the whole book is the Exodus, where the uh, Jewish people were slaves in Egypt as a slave nation under the pharaohs, and they're said to have miraculously escaped uh, the clutches of Ramesses II and traveled to uh, modern Palestine, Canaan, the promised land, where they settled and became the nation of Israel. And the exodus, this exit, um, was intended to demonstrate for them, the Jewish people, and for the, and for the non-Jewish people, uh, that God was wanting to be involved in this world. This was a signpost uh, that uh, God was pointing to himself. Now, in broad terms, if you um, consider this claim, there are some interesting things to say. Uh, the names and the places that are recounted in the Bible story correspond to what we know of Egypt uh, at that exact time. That at least implies that the story um, arose out of an Egyptian context and not a later Jewish one. And Egyptian records place a Semitic people, uh, whom the Jews were one group, in Egypt as slaves at this time. And they, uh, who are involved with the building works, just as the Bible says, of, of some of the, uh, the, the cities of Python and Ramesses, which were built by Ramesses II at the time. And although the Egyptian annals make no mention of a Jewish exodus, because by and large, uh, pharaohs only recorded their victories, uh, for obvious reasons, um, there is a hieroglyph that they found about 50 years later that does place the Israelites, uh, not down in Egypt, but up in Canaan. Instead, And that kind of corresponds to the Bible story that we find of the Jews occupying that territory. Now, we're not saying here that the Exodus and therefore Judaism can be proven, but I'm underlying, uh, underlying at the heart of Judaism is, is a faith that's premised on verifiable claims. And, and the claims of Judaism, compared to, say, Mormonism, uh, don't arouse uh, suspicion, but actually a degree of confidence. As you read the Bible events and dig up around that area, the world looks very similar to how you just find it in the Bible, in contrast to uh, North America, when you dig up the places that the Book of Mormon deals with. It doesn't fit, but the Bible does fit. Well, what of Christianity? Well, Christianity did not arise as a counter-movement against anything else. Jesus and the apostles were all devout Jews. And their message was this, that um, Jesus was the very fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, the Torah, written centuries before Jesus, promised a number of things about the coming kingly Messiah. It promised they'd be a descendant of King David. 
He'd be born in Bethlehem in the south, but emerge in Galilee in the north. They would rule by the power of his teaching, not by the sword. And finally, that he would die as an atonement for the wrongs of the world before rising again to life. And it was in the presence, uh, it was uh, um, all these prophecies in the Torah that really leads to many of the early successes of the infant Christianity. As they say, well, do you see these promises? That's what happened to Jesus. Jesus fulfills these promises. Now, the later Jewish leadership eventually rejected Jesus as Messiah, demanding that all uh, the followers of Jesus be excommunicated out of the synagogues, and they regarded them as blasphemers. And uh, the rejection seems to boil down to the way that Jesus didn't quite fulfill their military hopes of, of the first century. They hoped for a Messiah that would really overthrow and destroy all their enemies, and particularly the forces of Rome. But Jesus said these really odd things like, turn the other cheek and love your enemies and the meek will inherit the earth. And this didn't quite fit what they were looking for. So what is the claim of Christianity? The central claim of Christianity is that we no longer need to speculate about what God is like. Because God has offered an historical revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Now for a moment... I think there's some people here and you don't know me very well. Uh, this is your first time here. And if you've got a piece of paper, let me take out a piece of paper now. And I want you to, uh, to imagine what my wife is like. What sort of woman would marry a man like me? I'm not asking for that. Um, but if you were to then just imagine, well, I'm going to draw a picture. I'm going to draw a picture. Can you imagine what my wife would be like? Why don't you draw a little picture? Now, if, you, if you don't know me, this is your first time. Why don't you draw a little picture of my wife? Now, what are the chances you're going to get the right picture? Very slender. Unless, unless, uh, unless either you'd met my wife, and then all your pictures would be guesses, wouldn't they? Um, well, look, if you don't know, here she is. She's sitting there. But there she is. I like that picture. You see, Jesus is to God what that photo is to my wife. It is a revelation that ends speculation. I don't know what his wife looks like. There. You don't need to guess anymore. That's what my wife looks like. When asked by one of the disciples, uh, Lord, show us the Father, show us God, Jesus replied, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, this is an incredible claim, isn't it? A concrete claim. Let's go back to the slide. That's too distracting to see my beautiful wife. It, it means when we see Jesus thundering in debate against the... Um, religious hypocrites of his day, or when you see him tenderly offering forgiveness to sinners, you are actually seeing God in action. The God who made you. It means as you see Jesus humbly accept ridicule and bravely endure death on a cross, we see God. 
Now, can you see that that is an extraordinary claim and very different to any other world religions? Um, Gautama never said this. Uh, Guru Nanak never said this. Muhammad would have never dreamed of saying this. Jesus alone personally claimed to reveal God, not through a mystical dream or a divine dictation, but through what he was, what he said, and what he did. Jesus said, if you want to know God, look at me. Now, the religions of the world may be an artistic expression of our spiritual hunches, but if God has left a tangible photo of himself on the world stage, then their significance, the signpost, is greatly diminished, isn't it? We're left wondering whether actually they're just, in the end, creative guesses. But what... What marks out this Christian claim as worthy of one's confidence? Well, the answer is back in this speech that Paul makes in Mars Hill. So open your Bibles again to page 1113, 1113. And in the face of the unknown God, Paul proceeds to emphasize the verifiable nature of the Christian claim. If you look at verse 30, over the page, one one. 1114, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, the Messiah, Jesus, he has appointed. That's who he means by the man. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God should do something concrete to prove himself to me. Well, how about this? A dead man came back to life. The news of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, is not a mythical narrative in the head of a prophet transcribed in a book called the Gospels. It is a phenomenon of time and space. It is an event in history. See, at the heart of Christianity concerns this very public, verifiable life story of the man Jesus, the man who personally claimed to reveal God, and of whom God has given assurance, to use Paul's words, by raising him from the dead. Now tonight, I've not attempted to prove the Christian faith to you. Whether you you become a Christian or not depends not so much on your acceptance of mere facts anyway, but whether you're willing to trust your life to uh, this God revealed in Jesus. But I want, what I want to say tonight is that uh, of all the major world religions, Christianity is the most openly verifiable claim. And so if you stood there in the bookshop uh, looking perplexed at all these rows of books about all the different world religions and then turn and all these books on spirituality, can I suggest a great place to start would be to seriously look at the verifiable facts of the Christian faith. If you haven't done so, why not take a serious look? There are a number of lines of verification that you could explore uh, if you want to explore the truthfulness of Scripture. Let me just give you the headings. Uh, You could uh, think about the quality of the documentary evidence. And guess what? If you just go downstairs, uh, you'll find some interesting facts down there about the Bible. And there's a lot more information out there as you think about the documentary evidence. Or you can think about 
um, what do the non-Christian um, sources say about Jesus? Uh, you can read several Roman writers and Jewish writers of that time who, um, if you read them alone and don't look at the Bible, listen to what you can learn about Jesus. You can learn this about this without ever opening the Bible from their testimony. You can learn when Jesus lived, where Jesus lived, that his mother was Mary, that his conception was irregular, that he was a renowned teacher, that he did things which both his friends and foes thought supernatural, that he was given the title Messiah, that he was executed, how he was executed and by whom, that he had a brother who was also executed, and that people claimed he was raised from the dead, and that his followers continued to worship and proclaim him after he was gone. You get all of that from just history, just looking at the sources outside. You haven't even opened the Bible at that point. So that's a very interesting line to explore. You can also look at the integrity of the gospel accounts themselves. This is a great thing to do. Are there any spaces left in that gospel of Mark? Or are they all full? Uh, if you're free tomorrow night, why don't you just hear one account of the gospel just being enacted before you? Largely, it's words taken from the gospel of Mark. Why don't you come along and hear it tomorrow night? Um, And lastly, you could have a look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ itself. Look at some of the evidence around that. What I want to say to you tonight is, yes, there's lots of books. And you kind of think, well, there's so many books, you can't be clear. What I've tried to say to you is, well, actually, there are categories. There's unverifiable, there's verifiable, there's plausible, and not so plausible. Use your brains. Look at the verifiable, and I would commend to you the highly plausible claims that Jesus Christ is the signpost to God because he is God. And when you see him, you don't need to guess any more about God. Well, at the end of the account of Acts 17, verse 32... There were all these different reactions, and I'm sure there'll be those reactions tonight, as there always is. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. And Maybe you are persuaded and you want to believe. Why don't you come and speak to me tonight? I'd be delighted to talk with you some more. Maybe you've got some questions. Come and speak to me. There's others here that will be delighted to answer your questions. Uh, we will be running a Christianity Explored course where you can go and ask those questions. Why don't you do something tonight to come to know the living God? Let's pray.